For the federal government, thanks to Congress, the fiscal year rarely starts on time, but it always ends on time. And now, this first week in July, contractors are making the start of the fiscal quarter in which the government spends the biggest portion of available dollars. For our yearly year-end prep talk, we turn to federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And we had a particularly short fiscal year this year. I forget when it got started, but it was certainly deep into this calendar year. So what are some of the special considerations for a weird 2022 fiscal? Tom, the FY22 year for government contractors and their customers has been weird indeed. He referenced Congress, delays in congressional appropriations effectively cut the 2022 fiscal year in half. But here we are back in our old familiar part of the year, the fourth quarter, also known as federal busy season. This is the time of year when most of the business gets done. And increasingly, Tom, that work is shifted to the very end of this quarter, even for projects that used not to be done at the very end, things like complex service buys or you know, large IT acquisitions. We see a lot of those being pushed back until the last two weeks of September even. So I'm talking to contractors right now about three things that they need to work on for the fourth quarter. And this is one of them, which is don't assume that it's over until it's over. You have to make sure that you're tracking your leads, you're following your pipeline, you're staying in contact with your business partners and your would-be customers until the very, very end of the fiscal year, precisely because so much gets done at that very end of the year. And I think with the very late start to this fiscal year, Tom, that's even going to be more exaggerated. So no contractor vacations until the 2nd of October. Yikes, what a prospect for the summer that produces. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, People just back from 4th of July. But to what extent do you think the old phenomenon, by that I mean the 90s and maybe early 2000s and prior, that agencies would get a lot of the hardware they needed, printers, laptops, desktop PCs, monitors, that kind of stuff, they would often, when that was a bigger part of the whole buy in the first place relative to services, but still they would kind of get those done because it was easy to buy. It was a discrete product, easy to specify, easy to get bids on. Does that still happen? It absolutely does still happen, Tom. This is the time of year when agencies say, look, you know, we've had these modernization projects on the books. We've worked on some of them. Others, though, we're just really going to have to wait till next year. In the meantime, we need to upgrade our office IT on our current systems. So they're going to make the purchases they need to, to give themselves many upgrades, albeit within the same overall infrastructure. So if you're a company that works in the office IT arena, this is your time of year. Similarly, uh, year-end buys uh, typically tend to be in the furniture area. People want that desk. They want their offices refurbished, especially now that they're going back to them. So those are a few things that you can expect to see be purchased during this time of year. Yes, you want a nice new Formica service for the fern plant that you'll be bringing in to replace the one that died during the pandemic. (laughs) That's right. And there are multiple ways to get that solution. And by the way, it's probably also important to point out that you need to be selective in the vehicles you offer because some of them are faster and more flexible than others. Tom, this is something that I always counsel companies on. And that is make sure that your customers know how to get to you. You may have done an excellent job of telling them 
what solutions they can get from you and the functionality of those solutions, but you need to follow it up with answering the how question. And the how question is making it easy and fast to buy from you. And while I don't think that it's a good idea to give your federal buyers 15 different options, I do think that you wanna give them two or three so that they understand, hey, I can get you on a GSA schedule, I can get you on NASA soup, or maybe I can do a small business set aside with you if the company qualifies as a small business concern. Don't assume that your federal buyer has all the information on quick and effective acquisition methods. Make sure you're providing them with a couple of good options. We are speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And there's another brewing item in Congress, resurrection perhaps of some sort of bill, stimulus bill, whatever, if it can get enough support in the Senate. That trillion-dollar bill, which seemed dead last year, could be raising again from the grave, and therefore there's contracting dollars in there, if you look carefully. Tom, that's right. We're talking here about what used to be referred to as the president's Build Back Better bill. Uh, A lot of alliteration in there on your morning drive. But Senate leaders really last week and the week before had been working on putting together a new version of this bill, one that lowered overall tax rates with the hope that it would attract at least one of the two Senate holdouts, you know, Senators Manchin and Cinema, who had been opposed to the bill in its original form. So now there's some speculation that, hey, we might be able to get something done, and that something would be about a $1 trillion price tag, approximately half of which would be in new taxes, and half would be in new spending. And of course, some of that spending, Tom, would probably make its way into FY23 government contract actions, whether it be for professional services or healthcare or even things like IT. But regardless of general product areas, you have to imagine that a bill of this size is going to have a lot of earmarks. So if you have companies out there that have been working with their elected officials to get projects specially designated for them, this bill could be the vehicle to get that done. So that's definitely worth watching in the Senate. Yeah, so the lesson there is what happens in Congress, besides just the yearly budget, is of interest to contractors and the smart ones keep their eyes on the full horizon of political activity. Tom, that's absolutely right. One of the things that I've been telling companies, particularly this time of year, is remember, Congress can do things for you as an industry. They can do things to you as an industry or a company. A best practice for government contractors of all sizes is to keep at least an occasional eye on what Congress is doing, whether it's being really late with appropriations or whether it's instilling new tax provisions or requirements for your government contractors. You know, in referencing the new version of Build Back Better, I talked a little bit about taxes. Uh, The government giveth with new spending opportunities, Tom, the government taketh away with a string of new taxes. That's just one example of why I think contractors need to pay attention to what happens on the Hill. You make a big investment in your government business. You don't wanna wake up one morning and find that Congress has changed the ground rules And now your business is in trouble. And something else overlooked besides watching legislation is the idea of actually knowing who represents you in Congress. And they may add up to chaos as a body, the Congress, but individually, the members don't seem all that fanged when you talk to them individually. 
Tom, I couldn't agree more. I think that's right. And I think a firm step that each contractor should take is get to know their elected officials. Don't assume that they're always in Washington. Every elected official has multiple districts in their state or district offices if they're a member of Congress. They're in those district offices or state offices a lot of the time. And you can go and get appointments with them if that's easier for you than coming down to the Capitol in Washington. Even if you don't get to see the member, you can see the district director or the chief of staff here in Washington. Sometimes they're called the congressman in waiting, Tom. They're good people to get to know. Again, don't assume that your elected officials know that you sell to the government. Make sure that they understand the positive economic impact your government contract business brings to that state or congressional district. Make sure they know the number of jobs that are at stake when they talk about instituting new regulations, new barriers to market entry that make business more expensive for you to conduct. Will you end up on their fundraising list? Quite possibly, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to play in that part of the game. But the bottom line is when you're educating customers about business, you should be educating your elected officials about that business so that if you do have a problem, the first time they hear from you isn't in a crisis mode. Right. And if you do end up on the contribution list, you don't have to bring bags of money anymore. They take Venmo. <laughs> very flexible, very 21st century. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you very much. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.